Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on SoundCloud to get it automatically. If you like the Stitcher app, you can find it there as well. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. Follow along on Twitter at myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com where I'll post any of the videos that we talk about on today's episode. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com and I'll get back to you in a timely fashion. Submissions for this year's Philly Sketch Fest closed this week and frankly were overwhelmed by the number of submissions. The selection jury is currently pouring over everything and we'll have it the roster of performers set in the next few weeks. You can still submit your short film or video sketch by going to myfirstsketch.com slash film for the fourth annual Sketch Comedy Film Festival. And if you want to help out during the festival, send us some information over at myfirstsketch.com slash volunteer. We're entering the last weekend for our friends at Toronto Sketch Fest. And with that, this is the last of the series highlighting some of the troops performing at Toronto Sketch Fest. Today we head to New York to talk to Chris Cafaro, currently a member of Uncle Function. His first sketch is called You Call That Food? It's a parody of cooking competition shows. Chris reads the roles of the host and one of the judges, Boris. I read the stage directions, the role of the contestant, Daniel, and one of the judges, Andy. And Chris's troop mate, John Marco Cerezi, calls in with to read the role of another judge, Garrett. And just as a warning, there is a rogue iPhone notification in this reading. So don't check your phone. It's not for you. But let's get to the sketch. Welcome back to You Call That Food? Things got heated in our kitchens this afternoon as our home cooks got busy preparing their meals. And before we taste these dishes, let's meet our esteemed panel of judges. First, we have Iron Chef and world-renowned restaurateur Andy Gurdelli. Thank you, Ted. Don't let my face deceive you. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself. Next up, we are so very lucky to have one of Britain's most prolific and violent celebrity chefs, Mr. Garrett Russell. Will you stop with all the blabbering and get on with the bloody show? <laughs> Terrific. Our third and final judge has spent the last 18 months trapped in a Ukrainian prison camp. Please welcome Boris Stanislav. Hello, I am very happy to be indoors. All right, let's get started with our first chef, Daniel Jennings. Daniel enters. Daniel, as you know, we have asked you to create a three-course meal using only ingredients found in your home. Why don't you tell us what you made for us? For the appetizer, I prepared my famous bachelor stew. I started by mixing cream of mushroom soup with a can of bumblebee tuna. I then added some peanut butter, pineapple, and Cheerios for some texture. The judges begin tasting while Daniel is describing his dish. Andy and Garrett are disgusted. Boris is devouring his. Well, this dish is simply not good. You should never combine fresh fruit and canned fish. Ever. Very poorly done. Valid point, chef. Thank you. This 
is utterly disgusting. It is both the consistency and flavor of wet human shit. Great advice, Chef. Boris? Chef Daniel, I do not have much to compare this to. For the last six months, I have eaten nothing but turnips and soil. But I believe this is the most delicious thing I have ever tasted. If I were not so severely dehydrated, I would cry tears of joy. Okay, Daniel, one out of three. Not a great start. Hopefully your entree will fare better. (laughs) And of course, that pun was intended. Well, for the entree, I made what I like to call the potent pocket. I inserted uncooked chicken and some diced Slim Jims into the center of a spinach artichoke lean pocket. I then topped that with a bit of Trix yogurt and cooked it on a George Foreman grill for three minutes. Based on the ingredients that you have in your house, I can only assume you are a very unhealthy, lonely, and pathetic man. It's actually my stepdad's house, so... Boris once again devours all of it. Garrett takes one bite and dramatically spits it back onto his plate. Boris sees this, reaches over to grab the discarded food, and eats it. What the hell is wrong with you? You call this food? Hey, that's the name of the show. This chicken is completely raw, you stupid son of a bitch. I have the right mind to report you to the police for raping my mouth. Chef, you are a genius. Thank you. First of all, I am very pleased to learn that in this country, rape is a crime. Secondly, Daniel, I stopped believing in God long, long ago, but your food has made me reconsider. This almost tastes as good as my mother. Oh, does your mother make a similar dish? No, 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 no. Last year, we had gone 18 days without food, so we had to eat my mother. Okay, shall we move on to the desserts, please, Daniel? All right, this is my specialty. I call this bartender's fruit salad. It's a very simple recipe made with only garnishes you would find at a bar. I mix some lemons and limes, blue cheese stuffed olives, cocktail onions. I'm going to stop you right there. I don't have children because of my career and my face, but if I did, I would rather watch them die of polio than put this in my mouth. I appreciate your feedback, Jeff. Thank you. This literally tastes like gonorrhea, you stupid imbecile. You're the best in the biz, Chef. Chef Daniel, you have made me very, very happy today. I ate like a dictator. Thanks to you, I can no longer taste the blood from my mouth sores. There is no Ukrainian word for love, but if there was, I would use it for you right now. Well, I think that should just about do it for this episode of... Wait, wait, wait. It is okay if I take home some of this delicious food in my dog bag? I don't see why not. Wait, what is that? Oh, this this is my dog bag. My hometown is overrun by feral dogs, so I use their flesh to make these bags. I also make dog belts and dog hats. Would you like one? I give you a good price. Uh, thank you for tuning in to You Call That Food? And Blackout. Hey, Chris. Hey, what's going on? All right. So tell me about this sketch. Where did this idea come from? Yeah. So this is this was the first sketch I wrote for Uncle Function about four years ago. 
Um, and it was actually the first sketch we did in our first show. So this was very much our first sketch. Um, and it came from, I, you know, I was watching these, these cooking shows as we all do, you know, the iron chefs and the chopped and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you see these, these very talented chefs making these perfectly good meals and then these celebrity chefs just ripping them apart. And, um, I just, that always tickled me because it's just the height of first world American privilege of like this delicious food being spit out and rejected. And I just thought like, how funny would it be to see a, uh, you know, like someone who, who's starving, like, you know, two thirds of the world is, uh, as a judge on one of these panels, I thought that would be really funny and wanted to see what that would look like. And, uh, that's where Boris came from. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm not the only one that has issues with some of those cooking shows because, like, um, like, like my favorite one was uh, Cutthroat Kitchen. Oh yeah, um, and Alan Brown hosted it, and like, you know, you had to make food with you know with some kind of like negative uh, prank pulled against you, basically. Right, right. And like, just after a while, like, there's a humor to that show for sure. But like, after a while, I was just like. This is so wasteful. Right. Like, like, and then like all those other shows, I'm just like, like this is legitimately awful of us. Like th- as a society, this feels so bad. Right. Yeah. Like that cutthroat kitchen. They're like, okay, you have to scramble these eggs in a sock. And it's like, yeah, that's, like that's a terrible thing to do to eggs and socks. Uh, like, yeah. And even like the, like the regular ones, like chopped, I'm just like, the idea of cuisine to me, like spending $40 at a restaurant for some kind of plate of like small bites. I it just is not something in my DNA at all. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, there is, I mean, don't get me wrong. They are all wildly entertaining and it's, it's been so funny to see the genre change. Cause now it's like, they're all leaning towards that. It's a cooking show, but you have to do it with your feet, you know, yeah. some sort of twist. Um, but yeah, it is to me just like this idea of of us judging food and like good food, maybe not great food, but like to see Gordon Ramsay throwing plates of beef Wellington on the ground and you're like, there's so many hungry people. Why are, surely we could find some better way to do this. Yeah, I think the only solace I ever got was I, I, I saw some interview after the fact where uh, Cutthroat Kitchen, which is just was my favorite. So that's always my like uh, base of knowledge. They actually did donate any of the food that they had like on set that didn't get used like after the, after the day was over. So it was like, okay, at least they're not totally wasteful, but yeah, that is very nice. That's nice. Like it still felt weird. Like, I don't know. I, I definitely have that whole first world problems thing of like, Oh no, my, Salmon tartare was I, I'm just I don't even know that's a thing, but like, oh, this yeah. this was not okay. Where we're th- with this idea, especially because it's you know very classically a parody mm-hmm. of cooking shows. What came first, the parody of or the character of Boris? Because Boris is clearly the major joke of it, right? You, you know, it started with the joke of Boris, and it for me it felt just sort of like it was taking too long to get to him and there was all this dead space. So it really was, I think I wrote it as a chopped episode. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then I decided, you know, well, what if we made it like, made the rules of this show like a little wackier just to, and gave these other people more of a personality to make them really dig into this poor guy. And then, and then you see, you know, Boris being like, I loved it, you know? And I think some of the notes I've gotten about this sketch from certain people are that there's two games happening at once, okay. um, which is interesting. And it's, I think it's definitely true. Obviously the, the main game and the main joke of it to me is the Boris aspect, but there is this side game of having to cook with only things you find in your own home and, and these people really beating up on, on this chef. But to me, I think, I, I don't know. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that. There's uh, sort of multiple aspects of it, but I can see the criticisms of, you know, there's maybe too much going on that neither gets the full focus and that. Right. It, it's, it's, it really feels like, um, you kind of have to have the two games because if you just did like a slightly overcooked, like chicken breast, that would, that the other two judges would hate. That's not enough to like make Boris loving it, make it funny, you know, like, right. Like a slightly like badly prepared item. Isn't funny if Boris loves that. Right. Yeah. I think it just heightens that it's it's like it. Yeah. You need to go bigger into something that's just completely. It's not something anyone normally would eat. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's also, I love, I love sketches that are both, you know, sort of clever, but also have a physical aspect. And obviously this is an audio podcast, but um, I think the physicality of Boris really like being starving and going to town on this yeah. food um, is, uh, is part of the fun. And, and, you know, there's, there's that bit that you read about, you know, he spits it out and Boris like grabs it and shoves it in his mouth. And I think that kind of stuff allows uh, for a lot of fun as well. Yeah. I'm, and I'm sure that like, I've never seen this live, obviously, but like, I'm sure that you could play with the idea of like Boris, like talking with his mouth full and like doing that whole, like, like, Oh, this is good. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I definitely want to be able to do a Russian access with my, a Russian accent with my mouth full. <laughs> I'm not that good of a performer. Oh, that's funny. You know, I, my, my best friend is Ukrainian and I, Oh, so that's why you take sh- so many shots. Well, at a little bit. This also, I think this was like right around the time that, russia invaded crimea um okay and so like you the ukraine was in the news and but i sent the sketch to my friend and i had his father read the lines into like a voice memo so i could hear the way he (laughs) i I can't i mean this this pass we just did uh i don't think i was as sharp as i i could have been but so i basically just copied my friend's ukrainian dad's uh accent for certain words <laughs> to try and honor the accent as best I could. And, and so you performed Boris when this was originally yes. done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. Uh, what were you into at like comedy wise? Like what made you laugh growing up? Yeah, this is going to sound cliche, but Saturday, Saturday night live was the, you know, was my thing uh, growing mm-hmm. up. And I guess even before that, I mean, I, I actually remember I loved all that on 
on Nickelodeon. Yeah, I um, I've been doing this podcast for a while, and there's a long time where like the Nickelodeon sketch shows weren't brought up, and then just recently in the last couple of months, like I'm hearing all that constantly. Yeah. Like they, they say, I guess I don't yeah. know if people just forgot about it for a while, but like yeah, like yeah, all that. Or um, it was either all that or like the cartoons like Animaniacs or Tiny Toons. Oh, sure. Yeah, those were great. Because I consider those to be kind of sketch comedy as well. But like, yeah, so all that on Nickelodeon. Um, And did you hear that they're actually rebooting it? I did. I did. With Keenan as like one of the producers. Yeah, which I think is great. I mean, because I remember watching, now that I think of it, watching all that. And I remember one time my dad came in and and was like, what is this? And I was like, you know, it's all that. They do these jokes and have guests. And he was like, oh, so it's like Saturday Night Live, but for kids. And I was like, what is Saturday Night Live? How do I watch it? Um, and, you know, I was like seven. Um, mm. And then watching that and being like, they totally ripped off all that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then, and then, you know, once I was exposed to, at a young age, to SNL, that was like all consuming. And it, it, outside of that, I mean, I think between ages eight and nine, I I exclusively spoke as Ace Ventura around the house. <laughs> I drove my family crazy, but was just like, alrighty then, let's go to dinner. And because uh, I just remember watching, that might be the first movie I, I watched and was like, what? My world, I felt like my world changed, like watching this guy be so wacky and so, so funny. Um, and so smart at the same time and just being like, this is, this is, this is what I want. Uh, this is what I want to do. I feel like that's one of those movies where you can watch that like super young and really appreciate like the character aspect of it. Like, you know, the over the topness that he does mm-hmm. and completely miss like a huge chunk of that movie. Like. Like did, at at seven or eight years old, did you understand the reveal at the end? No, there, I mean there were things like, like I remember there's a scene I think where he, he and um, Courtney Cox like they imply that they're having sex or something, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what was happening. Like, like I yeah. think they show like a, a shaking bed or something, or or they play like, uh, yeah, or, or whatever it is. The the lion sleeps tonight, and like I had no idea. I just remember being like, you know, he was so wacky. And and then in that first movie, I think maybe a little more than the second movie, he's also like super intelligent and caring about these animals. And that aspect of it was, was so important because it was like, he's not just some clown. He's, he's actually caring about and doing a good job at, you know, investigating this crime. Yeah, he's a clown, but he's clearly the best at that really oddly specific job. Yes. Like that that scene when he discovers that Roger Predactor was was shoved off the balcony. It's mm-hmm. like smart wrapped in silly, which is just very much my sensibility. What was the era of Saturday Night Live that you were introduced to? Like when did when did you first start watching? Well, so I've been seven or eight. I started watching like in the mid late nineties, I guess. Um, and, and then very quickly got all the DVDs and everything and, and watched, 
you know, watched everything. And, um, I mean like my, my SNL cast coming up that I really loved was like the Dana Carvey, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, um, Mike Myers crew. That was like, so going back and watching reruns of them. Yeah. Cause I think at that time they were playing them on, on comedy central or VH one or something. They would replay them. Probably both at certain point. Yeah. And, and it was like, they would do them back to back. They would do like SNL and then kids in the hall. Which was also yep. Fantastic. Um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, you know, I just stuck with it. I've stuck with it my whole life and read the books and, uh, you know, whole thing. <laughs> I know it's not a unique uh, story, but. No, it's not, but it's also legitimately the whole point of this podcast. Is, right. Right. <laughs> like, uh, cause I even ask everybody cause I'm always curious and it's, you know, um, one of my just patented questions is so who's your favorite Sarah Life cast member all the time yeah that's tough that's so tough I, I mean I there was there's so many great ones um I think I'd have to give it to Chris Farley okay. um because there was something about him his personality he was so vulnerable and so um, human, but he was so, he was also so comfortable with himself and who he was. And, uh, it just showed, I, I think my favorite all time sketch is the Chippendale sketch, um, with him and, and Patrick, uh, Spacey. Yeah, um, just because like, it's this like sweet, innocent guy who really wants to do it. And he's just, and he just is so good at it and so funny and so aware of what makes him funny about it. And, uh, and he just gives all of himself to that sketch. But then you got glimpses into his humanity. And like when he did the Chris Farley show sketches, you know, I've, I've read interviews that that, that is just a slightly heightened version of who he really was. Yeah. Have you ever, um, I don't know. I, it's gotta be almost like 10 years ago now, but like the, uh, there was a, a, a biography of him that came out that was basically like an oral history where they interviewed almost everyone that's ever come in contact with him, like siblings, you know, other people from SNL, other, you know, movie people that he had worked with. I think it's called the Chris Farley show. I haven't seen that, but I would. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's just, you know, a, a book, an oral biography, and it was just so heartbreaking at times. But obviously it's just so, heartbreaking for his friends and family but it's also so heartbreaking because we lost such a treasure and, and so many wonderful movies and jokes and appearances from him that we'll just never know it's almost like i feel like we were robbed you know yeah i think i i mentioned this to someone else before but i fully believed that if he survived he would have an oscar by now because there has to have been some kind of movie where he would have done a dramatic turn and blown everyone away. Oh yeah. Uh, like, that's a great point. I, I believe it. I, I think he's, he was so deep and so capable of, of doing so much more than just being, you know, the, the big funny physical guy. Mm. Uh, okay. So now that we've depressed everybody about, <laughs> 
eulogizing Chris Farley for a while. Uh, what's your first step into actually doing comedy? So, as I said, you know, when I was younger, I would just do it all the time around the house, but I didn't actually perform until I was like 14 years old, I want to say. And it happened very much by accident. Um, my, my older sister, Jacqueline, was always encouraging me to perform, I think partially because she believed in me, partially because she just wanted me to channel my energy somewhere other than the dinner table. Um, but she signed me up without my knowledge for a talent show to perform along with her friend, Jay. Um, and it was like a talent show cabaret night to raise money for this organization. And she signed us up to do the Spartan cheerleader sketch. Okay. And I was a sophomore in high school and I weighed about 80 pounds. I didn't go through puberty until like three <laughs> weeks ago. So this was, I was just tiny, tiny, tiny. And so I was obviously the Sherry O'Terry role. And Jay, who was the captain of the wrestling team, played Will Farrell's role. And we rehearsed it and it was so much fun. And we did it at the show and it like, it killed, you know. And it was so much fun. And it, it was really like, I got the bug. But what was so incredible about it was there was a woman in the audience named Eileen Lawless, who uh, is a professional actress. And she was like, you know, that was so great. You're really funny. I want to put you in touch with my agency. And I, I met with her agency. And, you know, one thing led to another. And there's a whole long story behind that. But 15 years later, I'm still with them. Uh, oh, fancy! Yeah. And uh, and so that I, that one moment, my sister signing me up, um, really more than anything, I think changed the trajectory of my life. So you've actually like done professional stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've been very blessed to have uh, a, a nice little resume. Ironically, most of my TV appearances are on like procedurals and dramas. Like uh, I just did Chicago fire and law and order and bull on CBS and um, billions. And there was a a mini series called the night of on HBO. Sure. And so like things like that. And it's so funny because, you know, here I am uh, a, a comedian I guess I can call myself and all my, all my credits are like these super serious, you know, cops or, you know, troubled teens or whatever. I never think to actually IMDB the people I'm going to talk to on this podcast. Oh, well, I like, I never actually like think about like, Oh, maybe there's some information out there. Like, yeah, I wish my date would, uh, <laughs> give me that much. Just don't Google me before the first date. <laughs> Although, like, I mean, doing procedurals and stuff is definitely, I feel like there's definitely more work in because, you know, with the joke of, like, you can't be an actor in New York and not have been on Law & Order in that amount of time. Like, right. Or or what was that, um, was that on the, I think it was on the Tonys a couple years ago where, like, they made fun of all the nominated actors yeah. having had tiny little guest spots on one of the law and orders over the years. Like, yeah, it was a really funny it bit. It was really funny. And then they showed like Danny Burstein, I think had done it 
they had they had like six or seven appearances on the same show. Mm. It was very funny. It is funny. They do say that, like, you know, every New York actor has been on uh, Law and Order. And it's so funny because, I, you know, I have now, but I, I did it last <laughs> year and I've been doing this for, you know, since I was 14, 15 and I just did it last year. So when people would say that, I was like, yeah, yeah, go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's they make it sound so easy. Like, oh, yeah, just do Law and Order. It's like, well, I would love to do Law and Order, but uh, my phone's not ringing. Uh, so, so being discovered at a talent show doing the SNL sketch, mm-hmm. um, what's the, and, and you said basically doing procedurals and stuff like that. Like, uh, where does comedy come in? Where does live comedy come in for you? Yeah. So we, that's a great question. We, after that, like at high school, we, did comedies, you know, for the high school stuff. And I know that's like, whatever, everyone does that. But, um, so that's when I really started doing it actively and on a regular basis. And then when I went to college, I didn't, I was involved with a lot of other stuff, but I didn't join in the like local sketch group. I went to George Washington in DC and they have a great, uh, sketch group called recess but for whatever reason, I just didn't do it. I don't know why. In retrospect, I really wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated and moved to New York. When I moved to New York, I had been cast in a show, an off-Broadway show called The Awesome 80s Prom, which is a an interactive comedy show where the cast plays the different stereotypical characters of a 1980s uh teen movie you know like the john hughes movies sure yeah the jock and the cheerleader and the nerd and the the bad boy and you know the breakfast club-esque stuff and uh it was structured in that you know there were little vignettes that were rehearsed and staged but then a lot of it was improvised and a lot of it was interactive so the audience would show up as if they were going to their senior prom in 1989 and then we would show up and interact with the audience and then do little bits on stage. And so I did that for, for quite a while, but that for a while, that was my outlet. You know, that was my creative comedy outlet because you had a lot of freedom and it was a lot of fun. And the audience was always, you know, super into it. And, and so that was a good time. Um, but it was only on weekends. So in between I would, you know, make videos with my friends and write things here and there. And it wasn't really until that show ended and I was sort of left without an outlet that I was like, okay, I got to start really doing this myself and, you know, put a heavier emphasis on creating my own videos and writing my own scripts and, um, and doing that whole thing and trying stand up and getting into stand up, and and so that's really how it started, and then it culminated in uh, the the creation of Uncle Function, which is the name of my sketch group that I'm in now. You mentioned doing like videos and stuff. Like, did you have a YouTube presence at that point? Like, were were you posting stuff like that? I mean, I don't think I have a YouTube presence now. Uh, <laughs> but like, were, like, but were you yeah, yeah. putting stuff yeah, up? Yeah, various, like, mostly on Facebook and stuff. 
and okay. then like yeah some youtube videos and and things like that i you know i i in retrospect again like i wish i had done more i mm-hmm. you know I, as i said i was a huge fan of snl and i as any snl fan does especially now you watch it and you there's like a criticism of like well this wasn't as it's not as good as it was and they should have done this joke and oh if they're going to tackle this topic they should have done it this way and i remember one day just being like you know what like they're doing it what are you doing like yeah. your money where your mouth is if you and and i would start writing on my own just like if something happened on a Monday, I'd be like, this is where I would take the joke, or these are some weekend update jokes I would do. And this is how I would do it. And I never really produced them, but I would write them, write them out just to, you know, be like, you know, well, this is my take on it. So sort of like practicing, you know what I mean? And so did you do any like comedy education? Yeah. I, I, well, you were in like, I, enrolled in classes at um upright citizens brigade at uc okay um doing improv and uh i made it through the curriculum it took me a couple of years just because it's not cheap and uh you know you're waiting yeah. tables and auditioning and trying to make it happen you have limited that's another recurring thing of people when i talk to people that have done through ucb is just like it takes so long to go through because you just can't afford to knock them out one by one by one by one. Like, yeah. And some people do. And Hey, God bless. If you can do it, do yeah. it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it took me a little time. And part of that also was because, and this isn't to disparage the art of improv, but it's just not, it's not for me. I, I don't love improv. I, I do in the fact that I think it's a fun exercise and a good tool and the people who are good at it, at performing long form improv, are I leave me in awe because it really is great. But it's just not my thing. I'm I'm much more interested in writing and rewriting and rehearsing and putting up something that is thought out and rehearsed and polished. That's just my preference, you know. Yeah. Uh- not same Z's like for sure. So the improv thing that that's also part of it is, you know, I wasn't, my goal was never to do improv. Uh, and so I think I sort of dragged ass a little bit because of that. Um. So how did, how did, all right, so you do improv classes at UCB. Did you take, were any of your instructors, like people that we would know, like any like of the luminaries, that have come out of UCB? Any names that like are recognizable? Uh, no. And I mean, none of the, like the, you know, Anthony and Tamanick or, uh, or those bigger names that I think are being thrown around now. Um, oh, I, yeah. I mean, they were great. Uh, Nicole Dressel, Patrick Clare and Patrick Noth were my teachers and they were wonderful and they were great, especially Patrick Noth, I think was really instrumental in pushing me and, and, and encouraging me. He was my 301 and 401 teacher. And he's a he's a really okay. funny guy. I mean, he's doing great stuff. He just he puts out videos with Comedy Central, and he he does a lot of musical stuff, rap stuff, and he's very very funny. And uh, so they yeah. were great, great in helping me. Um. All right. So, how do you get to Uncle Function? Like practice practice. How did no. I, I? How like there's like five of you, right? Like, how did the five of you 
come together. Yeah. So there are five of us now, but there were six of us. And, um, okay. So I, as I spoke, we did this awesome eighties prom show and it was produced by a guy named Ken Davenport, who is a, a Tony award winning producer for um, once on this Island and kinky boots. And, you know, he's like a big deal producer. And he, after the awesome 80s prom closed, he opened up another show called That Bachelorette Show. And I was not involved in, in that one. But my friend Alex Fast, who I met through the prom, was also cast in that show. So he did both, which were both produced by Ken. And at the same time, Ken had just purchased a theater on on. 45th and Broadway in the theater district. And so during the rehearsal process for this, this show, the bachelorette show, he approached Alex and was like, listen, I'm thinking of having some comedy at this theater. Would you and your friends be interested in performing there? I can give you f- free rehearsal space and free performance space uh, if you're interested. So nice. yeah, I mean, it, it was great. And so Alex came to me and said, Hey man. And we had, you know, he's one of my dear friends and he was like, you know, here's this thing. What do you think? And it was really like such a gift from God because I was working, he literally came into my restaurant and sat and ate lunch while I served him and presented this option. And I was like, you know what, this is what I need. I need to get like, get moving and, and do it. You know, it's not enough to just sit around and complain that you're not getting opportunities and, and write in your computer stuff that nobody's going to see, like, let's do it. And so that was the catalyst. And Alex had reached out to the other four who he had known through various outlets. Um, and the six of us got together and that's how I met the other, uh, you know, the other four guys. I didn't really know them prior to that. Okay. And, um, and so that was it. We started meeting and we set a date for our first show. We got a guy named Alden Ford, who's a UCB guy, very, very funny guy, great teacher to come in and direct us. And we did our first show in 2015. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of floored. Like the idea of like, oh, I bought this theater on Broadway. Here's free rehearsal space. Here's a free venue to to go up on like i don't know that that is like a dream it feels Truly. like and if it sounds too good to be true uh you're right um <laughs> no it was it was a great opportunity and we, we performed there throughout for about a year um but then about a year in uh the space and the time and availability of the theater itself was very very limited and then they came to us and were like listen we can't we can't offer you free anymore. If you want to rehearse, you know, it's going to be X amount of money and, you know, we're going to need this and this, and we just couldn't afford it. And, right. And so that sort of fell apart. And then at the same time, Alex, the guy who started this whole thing came to me and was like, listen, man, I'm, I'm not happy pursuing this acting thing. I love you guys, but I, I think I want to go back to school and, you know, get a master's and, and shift, shift gears here. And so those Mm. two things happened at the same time and they were very 
difficult for us because it was like we we felt like we were starting to really hit our stride. Um, you know, in that first year, we had some growing pains, but we had we had performed at UCB at that point in their sketch competition called Backyard Brawl, and uh, we had won it six months in a row, and so we thought we oh, were goodness. we were like really sort of cruising. And then it was just like, okay, now you don't have a home and your leader is stepping away. Um, so that was like a, a real gut punch, both on the professional level and then on a personal level. You know, this industry is really, really tough. And when you see someone who is a dear friend of yours and also one of the most talented people you've ever met, be like, you know what? It's not for me. I got to step away. You're like, well, shit, if he can't do it, what am I doing? You know? Yeah. Um, so we, the five of us remaining, um, the five of us, by the way, I'll just name them, uh, Russell Daniels, John Marco Cerezi, Jessica Fry, Douglas Goodhart, and myself are the mm-hmm. five of us. Uh, we all got together and we're like, listen, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're at a fork in the road here. Um, so do we want to just sort of go our separate ways or should we double down? and see where we can go. And we all agreed, you know what, let's, let's see where this goes. And since then we have, um, we really sort of hit our stride. We, we worked our way up at the people's improv theater and now have a monthly residency there. So we have a monthly show there and they've been wonderful to us. And we have been featured on, you know, ABC and funny or die and Huff Post, And we're going to be heading up to Toronto Sketchfest to to do a couple nights on their final weekend at their main stage. So we're super excited about that. Um, how do you get into the residency at, at the pit? So the pit is great in that they are very generous with their time, uh, their stage time. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I think that's one of the things that um, I didn't realize about the pit was that they had three stages. Yes. And obviously when you have three stages, you want to fill three stages and have three stages worth of options. Right. Every night of the week. I, I talked to um uh Alan, right? Alan McRae? Yeah. Yeah. I talked to Alan last year before their sketch fest last year, and like he was just like, Yeah, I have to schedule a lot. Like right. <laughs> And it didn't occur to me that like, but like, yeah, so, so yeah, so the pit has time. Yeah, they have time. And and I think, you know, UCB in contrast, they, they're pretty sort of strict about who performs on their stages. You know, it's, you sort of have to mm. go, go through the ranks and, and do the whole thing. And uh, the pit, because of, of their space and just because of the way they operate, if you go to them and are like, Hey, we have this idea for a show. They're like, okay, go for it. And they put us up at their loft space, which is like their, their satellite space, which is a really great theater. And, um, we did a uh, show was there for about six months and we were performing well and, and they noticed and we're like, you know, why don't, why don't we bring you to the underground space, which is at their main location, but it's, it's more of like a cabaret style. Uh, in mm-hmm. in their downstairs, it seats about fifty people. Really, really great space. I think it's more conducive for stand up personally, but you know we did our thing on it and and had some great shows. 
And we started selling those out and they were like, you know what, why don't we give it a shot up in the big stage, in the main stage? And we did that and, and uh, we're doing really well. And then they were generous enough to offer us a regular, a regular slot about two years ago. Nice. Um, I'm always curious about sketch teams and their names. And I don't ask this question enough because I'm always curious though. Uh, where does the name uncle function come from? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, so it was very funny because we only have one woman on our team. Her name is Jessica. She's insanely talented. But when we were trying to figure out our name, the first suggestion was, what if we call ourselves Jessica's exes? And it could be like a joke on Jessica and us all being her ex-boyfriends. And this was like five months after I had broken up with a girl named Jessica. And I was like, you know what? I don't love that name. Let's go in a different direction. Um, but we love the idea of like uncle, like of the uncle, of what an uncle is, which is, you know, the wacky, weird, sometimes dark, sometimes mysterious, most times drunk kind of presence in your life who like comes in, makes you laugh, you have a good time, and then and then is gone, you know? And uh, so originally we were like, let's call it uncle party, an uncle party. And we, there's a bunch of our friends are on another sketch group called uh gentleman party. They're mm. insanely Too funny close. And, and insanely talented. Yes. And, and we were like, well, there's no way that's, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. So we literally put the word party into a thesaurus app. And one of them was function. One of the synonyms. And we were like, Oh, uncle, Uncle okay. and function is kind of funny and, and it's, it works in two ways. Cause it's like a party yeah. of uncles or the way uncles operate and function. So you get the phonetics in there too. Right, like, the unk, the double. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I was sort of on the fence about the name in the first place because I was like, you know, it, it's gendered. Uh, uncle is gendered. And I mm. wanted to shy away from that. And, uh, but then everyone was like, no, it's, I mean, it is, yes, but like, that's not what it means. And it's more about, you know, the spirit of it. And Jessica loved it. And, uh, and so it was born and I'm so glad I was outvoted. So, but, um, you, you come to sketch comedy without any sketch writing classes or do it like you just did the improv at UCB. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of like learned on the fly, trial by fire. I think, you know, our first director, this guy Alden, was really instrumental and sort of gave us a, a crash course in structure and writing and, and how to do it. And I think um, that was incredibly helpful. But I think also, you know, you just learn by you learn by doing and you learn by watching and and being perceptive and i think if you watch something through the lens of i want to do this as opposed to like oh i i want to enjoy this um i think you can pick up on a lot of a lot of things and especially with sketch where the you know the form has obviously changed over the years and it and there are various ways to do it but at its core there's there's a certain way to write sketch. You know what I mean? There's mm -hmm. a pretty universal structure that pleases the ear. 
yeah, there's at least a starting point where you have to play with within those rules for a little bit before you can really start breaking those yeah. down. And even even the sketches that do break them down, if you boil it down to it, they do the good ones do follow the basic tenets of, you know, having beats and resetting the game and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so Uncle Function has been around for about four years. Um, you work as an actor, you're performing plenty um and as we wind down a bit i always ask is there something that you've learned from sketch comedy uh whether it be something uh just like you know an actual piece of knowledge about the craft of writing or something like existential life lesson that you've come across in sketch comedy that you'd pass on to a new writer um i don't know about existential life stuff i mean don't agree to be the scheduler that's my biggest advice um (laughs) but you know what i I think the most valuable thing that i've learned especially coming at it as an actor which is where most of my training is is like you you tend to put them in separate categories you know sketch comedy or comedy in general versus acting and I think that once you start doing it and you tear that wall down, you can create a better product. And I think that what I love so much about Uncle Function and what we do and what I think sort of differentiates us from some other groups is that we are actors first. And what sketch comedy is at its core is is acting out a joke. And I think that if you follow all the basic tenets of acting, of committing to a character and giving truth uh, to their motivations and to their feelings and making these people real, I think it informs the comedy so much more and it makes it so much more interesting and relatable. And so I think that by doing a bunch of sketch comedy, I sort of learned to tear down that invisible barrier between you know, well, this is sketch comedy acting, and then this is regular acting. And it's, you know, obviously the content is going to be different, but at its core, it's the same thing. It's it. And, and if you go into it playing a character that you are like making fun of or mocking or not taking seriously, it's not going to play as well as if you are, you know, invested in this character and, and really committing it to the motivations and the actions and the emotions of who they are yeah i mean even just how you mentioned um getting your friend's father to record the lines so that you have a sense of what an actual accent would have been for that boris character like that's above and beyond so many people would not have done that yeah well yeah maybe that makes me a crazy person but uh but yeah i mean i just it's just more interesting to me you know, I also am a big fan of impressions and voices. And so if you can do it well and study it and really put the work in, why not? And then finally, um, you had mentioned that as although a lot of your professional work has come from procedurals and, you know, uh, the dramas that are more, I feel like more widely available, especially to New York actors. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you also said that you consider yourself a comedian. Yes. So why comedy? Why have you spent uh, your professional life and your well free time? Your I'm not even say like not professional life, but like why has comedy consumed so much of your time? Why have you chosen comedy as your path? Yeah. I think um, that's a really great question. I think growing up, I, I come from a very loving, fun family. I'm very blessed in that way. Uh, comedy and laughter has always really been a huge part of, of my upbringing. And as I mentioned earlier, I was a very small kid and undersized and, you know, uh, never really felt like I fit in or could defend myself against bullies. And, you know, you face bullies a lot when you're, you know, when you're 13 years old and super tiny and have spiky hair and braces and look like a little idiot. And, um, and when you can't fight back physically, you, you find that outsmarting people with comedy is a defense mechanism. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where it started. You know, I started honing it just out of basic survival. You know what I mean? And then there's also, I just find that there's so much power and influence in comedy and in laughter and whether it's, you know, diffusing a situation on the playground or doing it on the biggest stage of Saturday night live or a late night show, the amount of influence you can have in comedy done well is so uh, inspiring to me. And, and by that, I mean, you know, the best comedy takes a situation and, and shines a light on it and makes you think about it in a way that you might not have realized before. And it can change, it can change the way people think and feel, and it can change national conversations. I mean, I watch, you know, you watch the effect that, that Tina Fey's Sarah Palin impression had on public perception of Sarah Palin or, you know, or the impressions uh, that Daryl Hammond did of Bill Clinton and Will Ferrell's uh, George Bush. I mean, these things altered the way we talk about politics and the way we perceive things in a way that's so powerful. And, um, and as someone from a, political family with a political background and and very interested in current events and stuff like that that is so fascinating to me um you know i was thinking about there's sort of i don't know if you've noticed there's there's been this resurgence in the last couple of years of of this sort of canonization of ruth bader ginsburg and mm-hmm. you know this woman's been on the bench for what 20 some odd years she's in her 80s and I was thinking, like, where did all of this come from? There's movies, there's books, there's uh, there's documentaries that are all sort of new. And I really think if you trace it back to Kate McKinnon's appearance as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she made her this fun, loving, exciting character. And I really think that that was a jumping off point of this sort of cultural change and infatuation with Ruth Bader Ginsburg that we really hadn't seen. And that's just anecdotal. And that's what I think. But that sort of concept to me is so intriguing and exciting. And um, 
inspiring. I love, I love that aspect of it, of being able to influence and inspire and, and then at the end of the day, really just make people laugh. Yeah. Laughing's good. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks, Chris. Yeah, man. Thank you. Chris and the rest of Uncle Function are heading to Toronto Sketchfest this weekend, March 15th and 16th. And then their monthly residency at The Pit in New York City continues on April 18th. Follow along and learn more about them at facebook.com slash unclefunction. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at phillysketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.